Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 21st, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Why the Flood, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 22. Enjoy. The passage that we're looking at this morning is going to make three things clear. I'm hoping that I don't uh, get you off track on any of the things as we go, because these are important things. The first thing you're actually going to see here is you're going to get a chance to see what happens when mankind sort of takes a turn away from God and begins to ignore God, and ultimately what ends up happening is that over time he becomes evil and violent, and ultimately God decides he's going to limit the lifespan of people on earth down to 120 years, no longer. And then we'll see how sin grieves God. It's actually painful for God. And if there's one thing you were going to take away from this this morning, I'm hoping that you'll hold on to that. The sin actually grieves the heart of God. And then finally, we'll talk about how God provides a solution. The solution is the ark and the flood. Now, I know when we talk about the flood, what we're talking about here is judgment. Divine judgment. Now, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know at this point that that is not the favorite topic of a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I have no doubt that there are people that are even sitting here this morning as well as your family and, and other people like that that would say, this is precisely why I don't read the Bible. This is exactly why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Because you tend to see the judgment of God there very quickly. Well, what I would tell you is that there's a really simple way to understand a couple of different things. One is the fact that for every New Testament truth that's out there, there's an Old Testament example that we have. So yes, there is judgment. This is not gonna be an easy discussion when we get to that. Now, I will tell you besides that, though, you know, most people, when you talk about God, they, they have no problem talking about God being loving or God being merciful because, you know, we all believe that and we want to believe that, you know, in our heart. And, you know, a large people, a group of people, especially within the church, would say that I trust that God is also just. That we don't have a problem with God, you know, sort of bringing a reckoning where it needs to be. I mean, certainly God has got to somehow step up to the plate and take care of the Adolf Hitlers of the world, Right? But what about the average Joan or John? What do we do then? You know, when we come to a story like this, people's thoughts about God can be all over the place. And so I would ask you to come with a real open heart and mind as we're gonna read through the first 13 verses here. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to to Genesis chapter six. If not, you can grab one of the Bibles there down below you in front on the seat there and just follow along as we read through this and then we'll walk back through the story a little bit together. Genesis chapter six, verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse nine, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupted, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Well, let me pray. We jump into this, okay? Father, I pray this morning that uh, we could truly understand your heart, and that we could also get a picture of ours. What does it mean for those that would walk away or ignore you, Lord? Help our hearts to be in line with yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first thing we're gonna look at here is in verse five verses here is how sin affects people. Now, verse one starts off and tells us here that human population began to multiply, and as it did, sin began to increase with it. It said man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them. Now, the time span here between chapter five and chapter six, if you begin to add the whole thing up here, is approximately 1,500 years. Most scholars would believe that during this time period, the population of the earth is somewhere on the low side of about 750 million people and on the high side, about 4 billion people. So the people have done exactly what God asked them to do. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, they are multiplying and filling the earth. The problem is, as they do that, there are also some things that are happening that are not good. If you look at verses two through four, you're gonna be seeing one of the main things that people tend to disagree on in the Bible, and that is there are two groups of people mentioned here, the sons of God and the Nephilim. Now, I wanna be clear here. Let me give you a little disclaimer here before we jump into this, and I'll move away from the Bible just for a second while I do this, okay? I'm gonna give you permission to view this any way you want to. As a pastoral staff, we feel like it's okay for you to see this one of two different ways. It's totally fine but I'm gonna present both to you, and I don't know, if I slip, I'll tell you where I kind of fall, but I'm not, like, inspired, okay? I study like everybody else, okay? Verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they choose. Now, this starts off with talking about the sons of God. A lot of people believe that the sons of God were fallen angels, demons, those that would look down at this point and see the daughters of men at this point and then they went down and, and they, they married anyone they want and they produced giants. The word Nephilim here is a Hebrew word means giant. Those giants are the reason, a lot of people believe, that God needed to judge and flood the earth because this was sort of Satan's way of polluting the bloodline, in fact, and literally destroying the bloodline and at that point, you know, this is the line that Jesus is supposed to come through, so this is what God decided to do. 
Now, other people believe that the sons of God here were those that came from the line of Seth. Seth, if you don't know it, is the third-born son of Adam and Eve. Cain, Abel, Seth, okay, comes along. And Seth is described, even back in chapter 5, as a very godly one, followed the Lord's, you know, lead and did what God told him to do. And, and his followers, his family, his lineage did the same thing too for quite a period of time. But clearly, when you come to this point, they aren't following the Lord very clearly because they're beginning to marry women who don't follow God at all. In fact, if you look at the passage there, it talks about the fact, it says, the sons of God, and then it mentions the daughters of man, which is kind of a weird statement, but sons of God would reflect that this were a group of people who were basically doing what God was asking them to do. They were honoring God. But when you come to the statement about the daughters of men, basically what they're saying is these were women whose families, them included, were not honoring God at all. In fact, they probably didn't even believe in God. Now, let me keep going here. The first option here, though, is the fallen angels. Job chapter 1 Verse 6 is the primary reason why people go to this and believe this verse. Now, Job 1.6 says this. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God, talking about the angels at that point, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, what people will stop and say is, okay, see, the sons of God here were the angels. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this, though. First of all, you'll find that not only the angels were there, but Satan was not included in that group. The sons of God were the angels, but beyond that, Satan came with them. Now, the reason why that's important here is because I think the sons of God refers to those who honor God. I believe that's what the scriptures are teaching that the sons of God would be those that would honor God. This goes back even to what I mentioned about the daughters of men. The sons of God are those who honor God, but Satan is not listed in that because he doesn't honor God, nor would any who would follow him. So no fallen angel, no demon would be considered a son of God. Are you with me on this? Okay, so if I go back to the passage now and I look and it says, in the sons of God, in other words, those who are making a choice to honor God and follow God, that probably is not a demon. Would you ever think about calling a demon a son of God? Like he was honoring God? Probably not. Now there's another one here that comes from Jude chapter six, back in the New Testament. Jude, or Jude six says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now I will tell you, that I think this is actually a better proof that that might have been a fallen angel at this point because somehow they left their position or their, their, their opportunity where they were supposed to be and they did things they weren't gonna do and God actually takes them and puts them into a place that they you know, were kept like locked up basically forever. But the problem is it doesn't say that exactly. It doesn't mention marrying. It doesn't mention human women. There are some challenges to looking at, you know, the idea that the sons of God would be fallen angels. For example, Jesus himself in John chapter 3 verse 6 tells us that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit, and he doesn't mention any hybrids. 
In Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, when he speaks about heaven and, and, and marriage, and he says this, he says, there will be no marriage. In fact, he says, for in the resurrection that you will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but you are like the angels in heaven. Giving the idea that there is celibacy in heaven, that's another talk, we'll get into all that later, okay? <laughs> but the idea is that they're probably not having an orgy in some possible way. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 6 for a second and look at verse 3. It says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, for his days shall be 120 years. So God here in verse 3 seems to be angry not with the angels, but he's angry with man, and he describes him as flesh, and he stops and he puts a limit on how long he's actually going to be on the earth at this point. Verse 4. You see the issue of timing taking place here. Verse 4, he says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of mold, the men of renown. So what he says here is the Nephilim were on the earth actually before, before what? Before the sons of God went into the daughters of men. See, I think the issue really comes down to something you see in, in Numbers chapter 13, which is another mention of the Nephilim here. You have to understand something. Numbers 13 is post-flood, okay? Post-flood meaning the flood had happened and everything before that, other than what got into the ark with Noah, his family, everything before that died, drowned, gone, so now you have Nephilim who are supposed to be dead. In fact, Genesis chapter 7 verse 22 says that everything drowned. So I think the answer really comes down to who the Nephilim is, comes down to chapter, or verse 4 here in the last part of it when it gives this explanation about who the Nephilim were. They were the mighty men of, the old, real, of old, the men of renown. These would have been warriors, leaders, wealthy, powerful, big people. We have big people. Some societies are simply bigger than others. If you were to look back in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. Saul was chosen to be the king of Israel for one reason. He was head and shoulders bigger than everybody else there. Was he a Nephilim? I mean, it's... I think here it's important for you to understand that um, whether it's a giant, half-human or whether it's just a human who's completely neglected God's desire <clears throat> and getting more and more detached from God as time goes by, either way, it doesn't matter. It's not the main point of the passage. See, what is clear here is verse 2 is telling us that you have people that should not be marrying. We do know that that's clear. The problem here is something you see in verse 5 and verse 11. Look back at that. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So the problem here is that every intent of the hearts of man was only evil continually. I mean, listen to the adjectives that are used there. Wicked, evil, corrupt, violent. So clearly the issue here is evil and violence are an issue with God. 
Couple that with the fact that, you know, we know from the scriptures from like Psalm 139 that God knows every word before it even comes to our lips. Chapter, verse five here in Genesis six mentions that God even knows the intent of the thoughts. Let me translate that for you. He knows what your motives are. He knows what the motives of mankind are. He knows what we're capable of. He knew that the continual evil, what it meant for people to drift away from God or to ignore God completely, what that would mean. Now, the second truth here is in verses six and seven, and that is how sin grieves God. Look at verse six. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things on the land and birds in the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It says here in verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man. Now, let me tell you, at first thought, you know what that sounds like? It sounds a little bit like God is going, I think I made a mistake. Doesn't it? That's what we would say, Right? That's not what this is saying. I mean, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, tell us something about how God thinks. It says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. When God created mankind, we saw, remember in Genesis chapter one, in the last verse, in verse 31, he said, this is good, it's very good. He's not changed his mind about this. What this is, is not an admission of a mistake, This is admission of grief that sin brings even to God. The word here, regretted, is something that we call an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is basically when you don't know how to explain uh, an emotion that God has, you use a human word to try to explain the depth of that emotion. He's grieved. The Hebrew word here, regret, is the, the Hebrew word nakam, which means grieved. It reveals God's emotion here. Now, why would God be emotional? Simple. God loves you. You matter to God. Think about what happens when your children deliberately do something that you don't want them to do. Look, here's something I don't want you to do. Don't ever reach up and open up these drawers and pull out these knives and stick your brother. Don't do that. If they did it, it would grieve you. Don't run out in the street. There's cars going by that are a couple of tons. They will hit you. Don't do that. I mean, that would be grievous to us. God is grieved by the things that we do at times. I mean, think about, let's put this back in our terms for a second. We tend, though, to think that God is so far removed and so aloof from us that God doesn't care. He simply deals with us like you and I would deal with a bug. You know, if you're walking around in your backyard, you're walking on your back patio and, you know, some bug comes walking by, perhaps the, the guy hasn't come to spray, you know, in, in, a, in a period of time and a cockroach comes by, you think nothing of going, right? We just think, hey, I just did a service to the world. God's not like that. God is not in heaven going, I'm really tired of Monty. He doesn't do that. When I turn away from God and I start doing my own things and I ignore him and I ignore his plan, he is grieved by that. Why? Because he loves me like a parent loves a child. 
It displeases him. It hurts him. The grieving happens because his creation has turned to evil and violence, and at this point, he will step in. In fact, if you want to see something, look at verses 5 and 6, because 5 and 6 actually give a contrast here between the heart of man and the heart of God here. Verse 5 says that man's heart is continually evil and violent. Verse 6 says God's heart is broken. In other words, he's grieved. Not the grief of a mistake, because mankind's not a mistake. The grief of what mankind has made of himself. At this point, man isn't worthy to bear the image of God. So God's emotions come out, as they should. God is not robotic. He doesn't just go through the motions. He's not aloof and and unaffected by who we are. He's personal. He takes it personally. He's relational. He sees what ruined relationships can happen. He cares for us enough to actually send his only son to die on a cross so that you and I could be redeemed. And so to him, rebellion is painful. Verse seven here, he says, for I am sorry that I have made them. That is an expression of God's emotion. Now, that's important to realize because God, I want you to understand this is very important you catch this. God does not delight in judgment any more than you and I would. How do you delight in something that grieves you? You don't. Why would you think then that God is delighted about it? Sin and judgment grieve God. So here's the question. Well, if it grieves God, then why does he judge? Well, two reasons. Number one, he's holy. And number two, you're not. I mean, that's what the scriptures tell us here. Go back and look at verse five again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Drop down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Listen, corruption and violence and evil and wickedness, those sets upsetting stuff, not just upsetting to us, upsetting to God as well. You know, as I was talking about this with my wife, it it occurred to me, you know, if you think about it, to not believe in, in judgment, divine judgment, is actually worse than believing in it. I mean, think about that for a second. If you really stop and you think about it, are you telling me that God is never going to make what is wrong right? Are you telling me that God is never going to hold Adolf Hitler accountable? I mean, he wouldn't be much of a God if that were the case. Remember, the thing that that creates this, this, this judgment here is violence. And the reason why it's so painful is how much God loves us. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 talks about that. He uses even the the idea of a mom. He said, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son in her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forgive you. In other words, or forget you. In other words, God says, look, a mother who, who, that's the standard of love in every context there is. He says, look, they may love you and forgive you of everything. I love you even more. But remember, he's holy. He is holding us accountable. 
It's holding us accountable for what man has made of himself. Man at this point is not worthy to bear his image any longer. And God will hold us accountable, those who practice evil, accountable. One day God will make what is wrong right. That is what he does. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, even says he takes it a step further. He says this, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, that is what he will do. I can trust God at that point to take a wrong and make it a right ultimately. And you know what that means for us personally? I... And, and trust me, I'm not trying to make a small thing out of this, but, you know, many of you have had deep wounds that somebody has wounded you in powerful ways. And I'm so sorry that, that that's happened. At some point, the healthiest thing you could do, though, is to take them off of your hook and put them on God's. Because God's promise is, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of this. Now, third thing here that we want to see comes from verses 7 and 8 is that God will use the ark and the flood as a solution for sin. Look what he says, verse 6. He says in the Lord, uh, verse 7, excuse me. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and the animals and creepy things and the birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what God does here in verse 7 is he pronounces judgment is coming. It is the result of mankind's evil. Verse 13 then later tells us that God will destroy them. The Hebrew word there for destruction is not a partial destruction. It is a total destruction. And you learn this really powerful truth here is that you cannot abuse the gift of life that God gives without impunity. We don't get away with that. Verse 8, then in the middle of it all, you see that through all of this, uh, this corruption here, that Noah finds favor with God. Well, how did that happen? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly called the, the hall of faith. It's the chapter about faith. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says this. It says, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as they had un yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark by the saving of the household by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, Noah did what God asked him to do. That's what he did. So here's the question. Trying to be practical about this. How do you deal with the evil then that someone has done to you? Well, Romans chapter 13 tells us that we can use the system because that's what the government's for. But what about you personally? Do you get even? Well, biblically, I would say no. You see, as long as you and I believe that vengeance is ours, that world of the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, the eye for the eye, it just continues on. It perpetuates forever and ever. I like what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. He says, an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. That's true. Now, why is this important? Let me try to be again practically for you something. Um, if you're a naturalist and you believe in the whole evolution, biological route, that whole thing, 
you would have to agree by the very nature of what you are there, you would have to believe in something called natural selection, right? Natural selection, let me give you the, how you understand that. The, the strong rule over the weak. The strong rule over the weak. It is the lion eating the wildebeest. That's what natural selection is. That is what you believe. If you believe the, the whole biological plan, the whole evolutionary plan, you believe that that is normal and natural. Well, let me take it a step further. If you apply that into mankind and you think that we're a product of that, then what you're saying is there's no reason why violence is a bad thing because biology says that the strong rule over the weak, right? Now, but if you're a believer, that you recognize that God has created mankind different than the animals and God holds us accountable. Accountable. That we need to recognize that God's heart is, is broken over sin and ultimately he will hold us accountable. He will judge for sin. He's told us he's gonna do this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 tells us that in the last days, which will be like the days of Noah, there will come a day of judgment. Now, he's not going to judge this time by a flood, but he will judge. And just like there was truth in the very first judgment, the only way of escape safely through the judgment was to do what Noah did, and that was to trust in God's provision. With Noah, it was the ark. With us, it's Jesus. You know, Acts chapter four, verse 12, tell us that there is no other name given among men by which you and I must be saved. There is no other provision by God other than Jesus. And so when you and I place our trust, our faith in Jesus, what we do is we enter into the true ark, the better ark, the perfect ark. Jesus is the only one that can save you. Now here's the question. Remember what I said at the beginning, for every New Testament truth, there's an Old Testament example. The New Testament truth is there is no way other than Jesus. Just like the example was, there was no other way other than get in the ark. Do you believe that? Because God is ready to embrace you. Is your heart ready to embrace him? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would move in a very powerful way in our hearts and our minds to see that your heart was grieved at our sin. Mankind's sin became so evil, it, it hurt you to the point that you would exercise judgment. You would hold us accountable. Help us to see your love for us. Help us to see the life that you're calling us to lead, the one that leads to peace and joy, happiness. Not a life that's all about me, not a life that takes advantages of others, but a life that submits itself to you and knows you. Lord, I pray that you would move in the hearts of our people this morning to embrace you, God. 
cause them to call upon you and to talk with you and to walk with you, to seek you, to want to know who you are and how they can walk better with you. Lord, that we can sense your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, spend a little time with God. He is not aloof. He is not uncaring. More than anything else, he wants you to know his heart like he knows your heart. Spend some time talking with him. Get into the word together and feel his good pleasure in your life. God bless you all. I love you.